Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The Connecticut man uh, turned one of the uh, cannon to point at the door and threatened to uh, put a ball through the door if they didn't surrender and that they then surrendered. It was all in the dark and vicious and fast. It was said that it took four minutes. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Selden West discussing the taking of the British ship Shuldham in 1781, and she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Selden West and she'll be discussing the taking of a British ship called the Shoulder in 1781. This is one of those great articles about an event that is not well understood, but indicative of a movement that's very important. The idea of the American Revolution playing out as a civil war. There's a lot of different reasons civil wars are very messy, The taking of the Sholdham is just one of those examples of exactly why an event like this is so difficult to study. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Selden West. Selden West, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about your background. Um, I am a U.S. history teacher. I've just retired, um, and I grew up in coastal Connecticut, and I have been interested in the Revolutionary War in that area uh, since I was a child. Uh, I now live far from there. Um, But back in uh, about five years ago, I decided that I would revisit that interest. And it's amazing how much... um, research material is now available that 40 years ago I was driving around to archives all over the state of Connecticut in New York, in New York City, and copying things down uh, on index cards. And now most of that material is available on the internet. So it's been a real pleasure to revisit this tremendous interest of mine. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I found a, I was reading in a uh, history of Westchester County that was published just after the Civil War, and I saw a reference to a sloop uh, that had been gloriously captured in Eastchester Creek by whaleboat men from my hometown of uh, Darien, Connecticut. Um, And I thought, well, that's very odd. I've I grew up there. I never heard of that. And then sometime later, I was reading the McDonald papers. Now, 
These papers are a treasure trove. There are about a thousand pages of handwritten interviews done in the 1840s with elderly survivors of the revolution. And most of them were from Westchester, but there were also some from Connecticut. And in these thousand pages, there were multiple mentions of this sloop captured in East Chester Creek, the Shulbam. From the excitement of these memories, you would have thought it was a famous engagement. So that piqued my interest. I wanted to know more. What were the actual facts? When did this actually happen? It didn't happen, as the history of Westchester County said, in 1776. But, you know, that was just the first level of discovery. Talk about the raids of Associated Loyalists on Stamford, Connecticut. Yes. Okay. So there were Loyalist raids on Stamford and all along the coast of Connecticut throughout the war. Um, the number and frequency sort of ramped up through the war. But to really understand the position of the people in Stamford at the time, you need to understand the geography. So if I were in my classroom, I would draw on whiteboard, and you'd see that Connecticut is shaped essentially like a shoebox with a little short foot at the bottom left that juts into the state of New York. And in that little foot are the two towns of Greenwich and Stamford. So these two towns were surrounded by Westchester County on the north and west and Long Island South Sound on the south. So both towns could be attacked from the three sides. Greenwich it was, because it was the furthest west, was the most vulnerable. And by the beginning of 1781, Greenwich had been attacked so regularly by both land and water that most of that town was considered lost. Um, it was now con called part of the neutral ground between the American and British li lines. In fact, this ground was the opposite of neutral. So by the beginning of 1781, Greenwich had been attacked so regularly by both land and water that most of the town was considered lost, part of what was called the neutral ground between the American and British lines. In fact, it was the opposite of neutral. It was lawless, no man's land, and it was considered too dangerous to go down there. Um, and the civil authority had withdrawn Stamford. So Stamford was regularly referred to at this time as the frontier. At the same time, though there had been all these raids throughout the war, the Associated Loyalists specifically became a factor in 1781. That's when they formed, at the beginning of 1781. And they were the group based on Long Island by June at Lloyd's Neck, Long Island. There's only a two-hour sail across the Sound from Greenwich, Stamford, and Norwalk, and they attacked. There, if you plotted the attacks of the Associated Loyalists, the big raids and the little raids, there was a raid every week from Lloyd's Neck on the coast, pretty much from February to October. 
And so the stated purpose of the Associated Loyalists was to help the British war effort by distressing the rebels in Connecticut. Um, Many of the Associated Loyalists at Lloyd's Neck were men who, in fact, themselves had been driven from their homes in Connecticut. They were living in poverty. This was not a paid poor. So there was the financial reward of looting and plundering. But you have to think there must also have been a feeling of, well, we're getting revenge. So there were raids on Stanford, November, December 1780, and then in February, March, May, June, July, and August. All of these raids, this is just on Stanford, involved plunder. There was killing. There were kidnappings. Uh, A man in Stanford named Thomas June made the mistake of saying that summer, I'm not afraid of Tories, and he was shot dead while hoeing his corn in Stanford. Um, But the most notorious raid was July 22nd when the Associated Loyalists surrounded the meeting house in Stanford's Middlesex Parish, which is now Darien, and kidnapped almost the entire male congregation, about 48 men at one time, and kidnapped them, took them away, plus 40 of their horses. Um, It was a pretty stunning uh, move, and the party was led by a Stanford, actually, Darien man. There were numerous Stanford men in the company, men on both sides knew each other. Um, the two armed vessels used by the Associated Loyalists were provided by refugees from Stanford. It was very much a civil war in that respect, and that fusillade of Associated Loyalist attacks in 1781 were something of a last straw uh, for the people who lived there. How did the people of Stanford wish to respond to these raids? Well, what's really interesting is that you would like to say that their response was, uh, you know, go get them. Um, But the average person's response, um, it's clear from correspondence that many people were ready to give up. Uh, You know, there's sort of embarrassed mentions of fading zeal. You know, the state was broke. The money was worthless. People were tired of war and shortages. Um, After an Associated Loyalist uh, raid on Rowayton, which was on the Stanford-Norwalk border at the end of August, the Norwalk selectmen reported to Hartford that it had become more dangerous to be a civilian in that area of Connecticut than to be a soldier in the Continental Army. it's just interesting to, complete, to contemplate what would have happened um, if it, you know, with the Associated Loyalists and Connecticut, if not for Yorktown in October of that year, because that took, you know, it didn't stop the war, and it certainly didn't stop the plundering, which went on through 1782, but it definitely um, knocked a big. Uh, hole in the heart of the Associated Loyalists at Lloyd's Neck. Who is placed in command of this response, whatever it may look like? Well, 
the the idea for retaliation the minute that the Associated Loyalists had a great PR machine, you know. So when they formed this this board, they published it in the paper, and people in Connecticut read this. So the first thing uh, that happened is that uh, Hartford decided they would um, form a unit in Greenwich, in Stanford and Greenwich, and they chose a young man named Jabez Fitch. And he was uh, a lawyer. He was a lieutenant and an adjutant to Colonel John Meade of the militia. He'd also served as a spy. He was, he was smart. He was trusted. And the first thought was to make him a commander of a company of dragoons uh, to counter the land raids. But they couldn't find any horses and they had no money. So they said, okay, we'll put you in charge of whale boats. And that put them up against the Associated, boat, uh, Associated Loyalists in 1781. Um, since most of Greenwich was now beyond the lines, he was operating out of Stanford. The second part of the response was put in the hands of General Samuel Holden Parsons. Parsons suggested to Governor Trumbull, as he had suggested earlier to George Washington, an attack on the Associated Loyalist Fort at Lloyd's Neck. Governor Trumbull was all for this. So Parsons coordinated an attack in the fall of 1781. It was all set to go. And then at the very last minute, literally the last minute, it was canceled by General William Heath, who was his superior officer. Parsons was in a complete rage. And he left Stanford and he left, he gave permission for this small group of Continentals to stay behind to do this tiny little raid with Samuel Lockwood, who was a whaleboat captain and a former captain in Lamb's artillery. And they would take, they would uh, do a little attack on a very tiny fort at Whitestone. Um, and that would sort of lift everybody's spirits because it would be presumably a success because there were so few men and uh, a little, a few arms at Whitestone. Um, so that was their plan. Talk about possible targets for retaliation. Well, Lloyd's Neck was the big prize. Um, that's uh, Lloyd's Neck was the big prize. There were other smaller targets. Um, Benjamin Talmadge had used some of which Fitch's uh, whaleboat men in his attack on Fort Slongo in early October, and he would use them again when he attacked Fort St. George and burned the Hay Depot at Corum in November. But Lloyd's Neck was the big bad target that everybody wanted to hit. And nobody took it. It just, the timing didn't work. Your article is about the taking of the Shuldum. Tell us, what was the Shuldum? Okay, the Shuldum, there's very little that's actually known about the Shuldum. Um, and I suspect that part of that is that the name was so difficult for people, it is misspelled almost everywhere you find it. It was the name of um, Admiral Molyneux, Molyneux Shuldum, and um, 
there was a tender called the Sholdham in 1776. And whether this vessel was the same vessel, it's hard to know. There was another Sholdham uh, that was that was around England. You know, I it's very very hard to figure this out um, because the Sholdham from 1776 sort of disappears, and then a Sholdham appears in 1781. Is it the same vessel? It's hard. I it's perhaps impossible to know. But this because there are no uh, records of this vessel at all in the Royal Navy, I my guess is that it was probably Loyalist-owned, um, and it was serving as a guard ship. It, it, it had um, 10 four-pounder cannon, uh, a bunch of uh, four swivel guns. It was serving as a guard ship in Long Island Sound. One of the things that... Um, these armed vessels did was um, sort of be an escort for the wood sloops that were providing fuel um, to New York City. But also, of course, they were patrolling against the whaleboat raids because, of course, whaleboats left from Connecticut to attack Long Island just as often as they left Long Island to attack Connecticut. So the Sholdham was um, essentially guarding the Loyalist interests on Long Island. How was this ship actually captured? Sure. Um, so when uh, Samuel Lockwood uh, and company decided um, to go, they, their, their goal was to take the post at Whitestone. And on there, it was... Um, Lockwood, a, a Lieutenant DeForest of the Continentals that Parsons had said could stay in Stanford. And then it was uh, Lieutenant Joseph Hall of Fitch's Corps. And they left Stanford and they were heading down the Sound toward New York City. They were heading down the Sound toward Whitestone when they captured a, a wood sloop. Now, wood sloops were usually armed, but not heavily. Um, and so, and they were sort of a flotilla. So they e easily overpowered this wood sloop. And when they were sending it back to Stanford as a prize, the crew of the wood sloop said, well, there are five more sloops uh, that are with the Sholdham in Eastchester Creek, which is now the Hutchinson River. Um, and but they were the Stanford men weren't particularly interested in this time because of course they were uh, on their mission to Whitestone. But when they got down to Whitestone, they found the Keppel and the Beaumont, two armed Royal Navy vessels guarding the harbor. And of course now all their plans are dashed. Um, they had planned that they would sneak up and take this very weak fort, and now they find large armed vessels. So they need to turn back. What to do? At this point, the Americans landed on Hart's Island near New Rochelle, and they figured out a plan <clears throat> to take the Shoulder. Their plan became 
to portage their whale boats. Um, East Chester Creek, which is now the Hutchinson River, is on the far side of a peninsula that is now called Rodman's Neck. Um, And what they decided to do was to cross Rodman's Neck by essentially carrying, portaging their whaleboats through the marsh um, and to come out in the Hutchinson River above the Sholdham. And then their plan, their original plan, was then they would go in their whaleboats down the river and, and their advantage would be that they were coming from the direction nobody was looking. But to their great good fortune, when they got out in the river, there before them was a market sloop, uh, which was at anchor, and they immediately captured the market sloop. The hands were asleep, and they took the market sloop, and with the, their men lying on the deck... They then fell down to the Shuldum, pretending to be fleeing from rebel boats and wanting to come under the Shuldum's lee for protection. You know, the, the sentinel on the Shuldum called out to them, and they lied. And, well, they said the name of the boat, and then, you know, the accurate name of the boat, it's John Stanton's boat, and we're coming under your lee for protection, and then... Uh, they ran their bowsprit right into the netting um, and lashed fast. And it was a, though the sentinel tried to fire, it was so fast. The men were able to cut through at the, one of the things that was somewhat daunting is that they, when they got close, they saw that the children had anti-boarding nets, which came up from the bulwarks about, 10 to 12 feet Um, and this gave them pause but they had a cutlass and cut through and managed to jump aboard Andrew Mead of Greenwich managed to jump aboard even though he had just been shot by the sentinel and the other men poured after him and very quickly they were aboard men were coming out uh, from below decks, and Meade said, yelled to the men behind him, get the boarding spears, get the pikes, uh, and they did. In any event, it was uh, over in four minutes because the captain came out of the cabin with a pistol in each hand just as Andrew Meade reached the door of the captain's cabin with a boarding pike the captain shot and hit Meade. So Meade now had three bullets in him. Uh, but just as he did so, uh, Andrew Meade <laughs> stuck his pike into him twice. Um, and he was so badly wounded, he immediately fell and uh, called for quarter. And the episode was essentially over. One man said that that some people tried to uh, to barricade themselves in the cabin, but that the um, the Connecticut men uh, turned one of the 
uh, cannon to point at the door and threaten to uh, put a ball through the door if they didn't surrender and that they then surrendered. It was all in the dark and vicious and fast. It was said that it took four minutes. What was the aftermath of the capture? For essentially, this was a very heartening uh, episode for all the men involved. Um, I don't know that it changed anything in the sense of, you know, the New York press made no mention of it. However, when they got home to Stanford, they were heroes. It was a huge deal. They were made much of. Um, And so the big picture, it changed nothing. There's not and no commander um, mentioned the loss. There's no, no mention in the logs of other vessels on the sound. Um, it, it was not even a blip for the British um, or the loyalists that I have found. However, for the men involved, it was clearly um, just a fabulous victory and um, it raised spirits. How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? I tend to be interested in the little guys of history. I, the wonderful thing for me about um, this story was the, the voices of, you know, unimportant people, just um, getting an insight into um, the courage of these people who, um, David Blackman, who, you know, took a spear to the belly and lay on the deck, stuffing his intestines back in, holding the wound closed. I, I just thought these um, glimpses of these men made it more real and brought this little incident, brought the era to life, in a sense. Selden West, thanks again. Thank you very, very much. For having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>